Trump, who is dishonest, saying that he's in Bali. I think we can all see that this is a sham, and I'm not sure if he can be trusted now because it's clearly <laughs> a green screen, and he's trying to pull a fast one on us. Um, actually, ironically enough, it wasn't it? Is, it wasn't it out in uh, the Kwajalein uh, Atoll? Isn't that where the Mervs would hit when they were testing him? Uh, sometimes there, and sometimes only no island or the Phoenix Islands. Yeah. So depending depending what their criteria were. Yeah. For everybody listening, uh, he's the author of Titan Two, a a, cold, a history of a Cold War missile program. And today we are going into Minuteman, which I I knew some about Titan Two. I knew nothing about Minuteman, and I fear that Minuteman, your book, is even farther above my head. Titan <laughs> too. I put it on Kindle and I had I had my iPad read it to me and uh, it took me like two days, but I knocked it out and definitely above my head. But there were several things in there that really kind of stuck out to me. And again, I emphasized it last time when we talked about Titan 2, which everybody listening go back like 30 episodes. The level of detail you put into these books, I mean, truly is... It's mind-boggling. These are the physician's desk reference for ICBMs. I mean, it truly is the one-stop shop. Like, could be the encyclopedia for it. And, But there's also some things in there that, that really just melted my mind. And from the, from the, the, the covering of the radar-absorbing material, the cloth that would go over it to uh, – to the EMP hardening that would, they would do in the silos, to the having to find what metal wouldn't melt because tungsten would even melt and re-entry and it's got the highest melting point, to the self-stabilizing fins, to the clouds of chaff, to the the random the randomized uh, trajectory of the third stage it would have so it would act as a decoy, to the fins that would come out, and to the circular error prob- uh, probability, all just blew my mind. But Maybe I wasn't paying attention enough, so but I'll, so I'll just grab on this and we can go from there. What did they end up using for the re-entry, re-entry vehicles if Tungsten couldn't even do it? And does that fall under how last time you said you uh, you want to write a book on the re-entry vehicles, but the Air Force talked you into not doing it? Tungsten was only the, note, the tip of the RV. Mm-hmm. The main part of the RV was, depending on, <laughs> on the year and the, the model, the uh, Mark V and Mark Eleven were an ablative material, proprietary material, um, to Avco, and then the Twelve and the Twenty One are a carbon fiber buildup. Ironically, they showed me the equipment for building the carbon fiber, uh, oriented carbon fiber, but they they wouldn't show me the uh, their collection of model warheads, which is really odd. But yeah, the oriented strand carbon. Of, um, fibers is have what the reentry vehicles are made out of now. At least the ones I'm aware of are made out of nowadays. Mm-hmm. They had trouble with the nose tips um, ablating asymmetrically, which caused problems with the the accuracy of the reentry vehicle. And at one point, the phenolic tape they used, Seal tape they used to wrap the Mark 11, was done in such a manner that the quality control wasn't. <laughs> necessarily known at the time and they had this wrapping in the wrong direction and it caused the reentry vehicles to spin catastrophically. There was a small amount of spin to, like a rifle bullet to make it more accurate but these things spun up well past their design limit and just disintegrated. It's it's I, the one thing that really stuck out in my mind was um, that you'd have the radar absorbing material on there to lower the RCS or yeah, the cross the radar cross section and then uh-huh. you have uh, for everybody listening, you have decoys because there's there's no there's no atmosphere in space. Everything goes as if it's it is a projectile. So you'd have all these balloons that would kind of uh, or inflatables that would look like multiple independent reentry vehicles. And then you talked about how I thought it was kind of funny. It was like after a certain amount of I guess uh, reentry, the uh, the radar cross section, the, the radar absorbing material would ablate. It would just burn because it was you know what six seven thousand degrees Fahrenheit coming in at Mach twenty. It right. would all blow away, and it would be you know an ionized ball, and it was very very visible to radar. But at that point, 
it didn't matter. <laughs> it, it, it's right. By that, at that point, if they hadn't launched, it wasn't against it. It was too late. Yeah, it's. I thought it was kind of it was kind of funny in a dark way, but I mean, it's like it's like turning around and seeing a train, and it's like seeing it before you hear it. It doesn't matter. By the time you see the train, that it, it's you're done. <laughs> and so it's yeah. It, yeah, It's like oh no, we can spot this thing. It's glowing at eight thousand degrees. Well, by the time you see that, man, unless you've got like a Sprint ABM missile. That thing's coming right back in, and it, it, you're donezo. Have you ever seen a sprint takeoff yes. on the oh internet? Oh, my God, yes. I oh, mean. my God. Uh, it's just mind-boggling. I, I have tried to get so many people into the Sprint ABM, people that don't even like missile. Like my older brother, who's like a software guy, and, you know, he's a meathead. I send him videos. I'm like, Charlie. I'm like, look at the Sprint ABM. And he's like, why Why the hell are you texting me this video from the 1960s? <laughs> it's three in the morning. Like, what do you, what do you want? And I'm like, look at the speed. <laughs> and he's just like, yeah. it's like all right, what do you man. mean it's three in the morning? You should be re- re- ready to wake up and look at missile stuff. What kind of I know. stuff here are you? Exactly. I'm like, do you not understand it? The, the 100Gs of resistance it's going through? It's zero to Mach 10. And he, it's all right, man. For anybody listening, Google or go to YouTube, Sprint ABM, the anti-ballistic missile. It was it was for like last second interception. This thing would take off. I mean, it looks it kind of looks like when you see those old like 1903 videos from Times Square and it's a bunch of horses and you know they're all kind of sped up in some weird you know for whatever reason that's what the old film does. It looks like it's sped up. Like it looks like it, excuse my friend. It looks like shitty like special effects from like the 30s. It's just sped up, but that's actually in real time. It, it's yeah. it's absolutely insane. But to kind of pivot from that, you talked about something that I haven't hadn't been able to find anywhere else that I first heard about in Garrett Graff's Raven Rock, and it's the ERCS, which to me is like the coolest part of the whole missile program. Is I don't want to. I could you please explain that to my listeners what ERCS is? The Emergency Rocket Communication System. I happen to have been able to find the guy who developed it, who was a program manager for SAC. And so I have more than, and I had to cut a bunch of the detail that he wrote for me because at some point you just, <laughs> you can't have every knob and control described. But what they did was they took, um, I think a total of six by the end of the program, silos at Whiteman Air Force, Whitman Air Force Base, and they replaced the Mark V RV or Mark 11 RV was one modified that looks exactly the same, but had a radio system, which is actually on display at uh, the Smithsonian. You can look at the the ERPS uh, components. And what it would do is launch up over the United States or one, one trajectory was more towards Europe to help with the European forces. But launch up to an attitude, altitude, I don't recall. And it would broadcast a tape recorded message which was the launch code for that day. So if if the um, SAC was destroyed, they'd launch these things up, and that would allow the launch control centers to have a signal to launch, uh, orders to launch. It's which is what it's what I love. It'd be like, uh, it'd be like if no one had their car keys in a parking lot, and someone took like a like a Nerf football and put like a master car key on it that unlocked everything. And they threw it across the whole parking lot, like a Walmart parking lot. As it went over, it would unlock everything. And it was, it was first, everything else fails. It's sort of the... But it didn't launch anything. It just gave yeah, the, yeah. the code for the day well, that's, that's, or the that's, week. That's what I mean. And that, that could be recorded by... A capsule could record that, not on their own whim, but of course, they'd get instructions and a capsule would... Uh, the command, the launch officers would read the code in. Then it would play back to verify. Mm-hmm. So it was a um, really extraordinary piece of equipment. It's 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 one of my favorite things. Just the redundancies upon redundancies is just I've always loved that about strategic air command. Um, but something something kind of confused me about it was in in the vein of like Doctor Strangelove. You know, why did you keep you? Know, why did you keep it a secret? You're supposed to tell the whole world, right? That's the point of the doomsday weapon: is you let everyone know it's there. It's a deterrent that way. Why was the ERCS so so tightly kept secret? 
you, yeah, well, I feel like it would be you would want the enemy to know that no matter what, we're going to get our well, stuff off. But if they know which silo, which launch facilities and missiles are in, they may target those first. Sure. In which case, as soon as the backup capability is wiped out. Sure. I mean, if I was in Soviet Union, I would have targeted those first mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. And so they would have wiped that out. The unsack bases are wiped out, and all of a sudden the missiles have old information to launch on. Very true. Well, of course, of course, you are the master on it. It's definitely. Well, <laughs> I know the masters on it. Let's put it that way. Nonsense. I, I will not accept that as an acceptable answer. You are the master. It's. Did you see the reviews on Amazon? There's one guy who wrote a review that the book was written too early, and I'm a moron. I'm an academic striving for my own personal gain. That was actually the first review written, uh, accepted by um, Amazon. The other 12 or 13 are very highly commendable, but that one stopped me from having five stars. I have 4.5 stars because of that, pardon the French, moron. He or she obviously, A, didn't read the book, or B, wished they'd written it and are pissed that they didn't. It's the latter. That's what it is. But I'll tell you something, Tom. It's an interesting thing. I have a book on Operation Argus the launching of the nuclear weapons into outer space to create an artificial radiation belt. And the guy did a very, a very, um, oh, what I was a brief job of, of annotating or citing references. I mean, 30% of the Miniman book are taken up by the references yeah. because the, the point is 10 years, 20 years from now, someone reads the book, they're going to know where it came from, and the National Air and Space Museum has an archive. Wright Patterson has an archive, and uh, Space Command has an archive, and so does Vandenberg. So there's no excuse for people not being able to get to it because it's all unclassified. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. No, whoever left that comment, it's what it is. Is that's that's an angry person. Sometimes I'll have people leave comments on my channel. You know, I feel like I'll do an awesome interview. And so this guy sucks. What a moron. This guy's a dipshit. And what I always kind of ask them, sometimes they'll email me and I'll just email them back. And I just, the first, I'll just say like, is everything okay at home? Like, I won't know who it is. I'll be like, is everything okay? More often than not, some people just say, everything's fine. Fuck you. Excuse my French. Some of them, they open up and they're like, dude, my dog just died. I'm sorry. I got drunk last night and left an angry comment. You'd be surprised how many people just, if you just say, are you all right, man? They just. Yeah. Well, they, good for you. Good for you. Now, the, the thing that bothered me most was totally baseless comment yeah, because yeah. I did. I mean, I'm, I'm a nothing. I'm, I may be well known in Minuteman and Titan circles, but for the most part, no one knows or cares who I am, which is, I do. that's fine with me. I didn't write it for personal gain. But one thing I did run into, and not so much in the Titan 2 book, but with the Minuteman book, was the idea of who's this clown writing this book? He wasn't in the program. Why is he writing it? I stayed out. I don't belong to Facebook. I have no intention to belong to Facebook. But the reason I stayed out of it was, one, I'm not from Miniman, so I'm not going to convince this person that I should have written the book. And two, if you want to do so much about writing the history of Miniman, write the damn book yourself. (laughs) Most people, most people, I, I have a book on cruise missiles that's, Beautifully illustrated, stunning photographs. There's photographs of Regulus that I never saw, which kind of annoyed, uh, saddened me because I thought I had the best collection. But there are absolutely no references, no citations of where the information came from. So you have no idea if, yeah. if the guys made this stuff up. Most of what he wrote was true. But if you open that book, I opened it hoping to find new reference material on Regulus. Yeah. 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 That's just lazy. Yeah. Well, that that's what that's what that's what I love about your books is I mean they are, you know, a lot of authors they do a good job at staying staying unbiased. You go above and beyond. Yours truly is a like what you do. You your books, the two I've read, are for lack of a they, they are autopsies. They are apolitical, yeah. unbiased, unemotional autopsies, and that's it's amazing. Very- very interesting description because my idea was to write Regulus was the first one and I wrote 
I know a lot of people thought Regulus was a waste of money in hindsight. So my my decide my decision in writing any of these books is I write them as if it's there and then instead of here and now. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's easy to say Minuteman. Well, Regulus should never have been built because Polaris worked so well. But if the Polaris hadn't worked so well, yeah. we'd be screwed. Yeah. So yeah. hindsight is and, and the stories the stories in Titan Two and in Regulus people look at that and go. They really did that back then. I can't believe, it. like, like Roy Pearson riding on the wing of Regulus One during his initial taxi tests. I mean, they, they wouldn't even think of doing that now. Mm-hmm. I've met, I met and interviewed Roy, wonderful guy, a test pilot that just loved what he did and did what was necessary. Mm-hmm. So you could say, in hindsight, the guy's an idiot, but back in the day, they needed this thing to be tested and work and be ready to deploy. Mm-hmm. So. Well, yeah. But Miniman's, Miniman's the same way in terms of the propellant story. Yeah. yeah. Um, the propellant story, much to my surprise, no one's complained about the title of the chapter that says, From Polaris Came Miniman. If you really do the research, which I did, you can easily demonstrate, much to the Air Force's chagrin, that the propellant breakthrough came due to Navy um, funding and work, not Air Force, even though Ed Hall would argue he's passed away now but he would argue that he he designed everything he didn't there are a lot of other very sharp people involved in this mm-hmm. and the the importance of of minuteman if i'm if i'm correct was that with the liquid fueled rockets not only were they they were dangerous in that if you messed up through human error um you know we talked about that last time with how lethal titan right. was and I've listened to our past episode, and I actually wanted to touch on something I said when I was describing how the guy died from when they were wiping it down with Freon because it wasn't lifting up the noxious fumes, and you pointed out it wasn't designed to. When I say Titan II or any of these missile systems are dangerous, aside from the obvious thermonuclear warhead, when I say they're dangerous, they're dangerous in the same way that I've had on a friend several times. He d- he does sky- he's a skydive instructor, does base jumping, wingsuiting. And he says the equipment does not fail. The mean failure time is like a billion, truly is like a billion jumps. Yeah, yeah. It's it's people that misuse it are the ones that go into the side of a cliff. So if I could go back and just retroactively, when I say Titan II was a lethal system, it's lethal if you do not use it correctly. My air conditioning system is lethal if I go suck the Freon out of the machine. Well, well, if you're if you're stupid enough to be have a lit cigarette in your hand when you fuel your car, it isn't the manufacturer's fault. Not Exxon it isn't Mobile. gasoline's fault. It's your fault for being just stupid. It's it's Darwin. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's Darwin exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so about Minuteman, it its importance, and this is all still new to me, um, was that let's say during Titan II, if the president said, you know, launch. It would actually take. I mean, it, it would take what a, a couple hours to get it ready. No, to no, no. For Titan, no. Titan, was- Titan, Atlas one and Atlas and and all the variations of Atlas and Titan one were liquid propellant. They needed to come to the surface and be fueled in about 15, 15 minutes to get the locks, the liquid oxygen on board. So that's fifteen minutes of exposure to and then not being able to launch. Titan two launched within them. The, to turn the keys and then launch and actually get it, get out of the hole, I think was around five minutes. I just, I don't remember the details. Okay. Um, Miniman one was launched in 58 seconds. That's so, so I was, I was, which I normally always do. I guess that's my trademark is horribly exaggerate. So not several hours, but even 15 minutes or 30 minutes, five minutes. Well, when a, when a Soviet ICBM can hit in 30 minutes, that's a big amount of time. Did we detect it right away? So is it actually going to be here in 30 minutes or is it going to be here in 27 minutes? Well, if it's a submarine-launched cruise missile oh, yeah. or submarine-launched ballistic missile off the coast of California, oh, it's yeah. going to be more like five or ten minutes. Exactly. So, so, there's so a, it was, it's, it's as fast as we could logically do it. Yeah. Um, well, that's why it was called Miniman. It could respond in a minute. No, that's not actually why it was named that, but... You could argue that Minute Man, Minute Man, it's actually um, just picked kind of out of the sky. The original uh, description that Hal used was System Q. And the reason he did that was he, 
he was very jealous of other agencies in the government and he didn't want people to know what he was designing until he popped it on <laughs> they were going to use sentinel but that uh, turned out not to be the choice and minuteman was used instead i love i love minuteman well because it in that when minutes matter when it's not when it's not 1940 and you're sending over a wave of 10,000 bombers and it's going to take hours to get there and yeah a lot of them already get shut down but you're going to get through when it is when you know eisenhower the whole continuity of government plans the helicopter evacuation the relocation arc so that you could get underground because it would all happen in a matter of minutes the slbms off the coast of of washington dc it does matter when you're getting down. You know, it's like kind of like an F1, like, Formula Racer car, and you'll see them, and they're, like, putting on hubcaps made out of, like, carbon fiber, and it's like, these, these are cost a million dollars each, and it's like, why the hell do you need a million-dollar hubcap? And it's, oh, well, it, it shaves off about two milliseconds, and it's like, well, why do you need it? Because that's what the race comes down to. And yeah. that, man, there was an actual huge advantage to being able to launch in under a minute as opposed to five minutes or 15. That's a lifetime when it's when it's mutual assured destruction via reentry vehicles carrying megatons of debt. Well, Titan II, the, the, to turn the keys, get the message and turn the keys took about a minute. But the actual liftoff took time for the engines to ignite and, and cause the acceleration to lift it out of the hole. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's an amazing to me. What fascinated me about all these books that I've written is the technology behind it. Yeah. For someone to come up with, I still am, inertial measurement units still just blow me away. Oh yeah. You can, you can tell where it's going to the accuracy that it can tell that it can do now. And one of the problems Miniman faced and Titan II faced, although I'm pretty sure they didn't fire a Titan II south. Um, there were some naysayers. There are always academicians that um, scientists and whatever that would say we've never launched one over the pole, so we don't know if it's going to hit what it should hit. And Stark Draper, who was maybe the um, one of the people that was involved in as an inspiration for Iron Man, because there is a Draper lab, and his name was Charles Stark Draper. <laughs> anyway, he he assured everybody. That, uh, and this guy was very smart. I mean, scary smart. Yeah. He assured all the naysayers that if launched over the poles, yes, we had enough uh, satellite information to know the gravity anomalies. Yes, that was all programmed to take care of. Yes, it would hit and go off and destroy its target. But in order to, to prove some of the naysayers a little more um, obvious, they launched south to a place called Oino Island which wasn't directly south, but it was so much further south asthma than the launches to Kwajalein and, and Oetok. And that's, it landed accurately enough to show that, yes, with a nuclear weapon it carried, it would do the job. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's, a, there's some similarities in, um, I think it was with the U-2, the fuel it used. It was, uh, it, one of the components of it was I think this was from Ben Rich's Skunk Works. Um, the fuel it would use was also used in a bug repellent, and they used so much of it one year in the fifties that there was actually a shortage of bug repellent that summer. But it was classified as to why, so they just oh, there, there's a shortage, and it was just no yeah. one knew that yeah. this super secret. So with yeah. Minuteman, the transistors. That at one point it, they were, or the, or the, is it was it the transistors? I'm technologically illiterate. The motherboard, whatever it was, it used ninety percent of the nation's supply of computer chips. Yeah, yeah. yeah computer back when they started using the computer chips, and it's interesting. The computer chips varied from um, ceramic wafers, which had the uh, the components deposited on them, larger, smaller scales than discrete components, but still much bigger than mm-hmm. integrated circuits, but when Apollo went to the moon without circuits, without um, computer chips, in the sense that we know them as integrated circuits as we know them today. Um, but yeah, Minuteman, in many ways, Minuteman, the, the Air Force, and I guess probably Polaris as well, but certainly Minuteman, um, fueled the uh, semiconductor industry without the demand they placed. And, and not only the demand, and that's the easy thing to think about, but the quality control mm-hmm. 
the companies initially resisted the cost of the quality control because it was exorbitant in their mind. It was easier to throw out defective chips yeah. and defective transistors than it was to try and figure out why. And then when the Air Force said, sorry, you're going to need to tell you, not only do you need to check what went wrong, but you need to find out why it went wrong and how to fix it. Yeah. And that made Miniman Reliable Parts uh, highly, highly sought after and ended up being cheaper than the original um, production because they weren't throwing them out. Mm -hmm. That's Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. It makes me think of uh, Project Pluto, Pluto Slam, the, the nuclear-powered cruise missile, you know, the flying crowbar they wanted to make in the 50s. Yeah. And they, that was slam was, was that was a regulus oh. essentially going to be regulus three. Oh, I didn't know that. I interviewed the um, I don't remember the Walters his first name. I interviewed the guy. He wanted me to spend a lot of time in the book to discussing slam, but there wasn't much I could talk about. Yeah, it was uh, it was a naked reactor. They would they wouldn't land. <laughs> They'd launch him near Eureka, California. So if there's a failure to go into the Pacific. It would run its test mission, then they'd crash it into the Pacific because there's no way they could have that thing spewing radioactive exhaust mm -hmm. come into land. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's. I know they they used um, what it was beryllium oxide, beryllium trioxide. It was the fuel sources, the little the hexagonal. They said they looked like a cross section of a pencil, the little fuel rods, and mm -hmm. one of the companies they used was Coors. Because they had such, a, they had they had ceramics and can making down pat. They used cor uh, the the beer company. Really, would have been a neutron absorber. It wouldn't have been the actual propellant. Okay. Um, well, then whatever it was, whatever it was, maybe one that would thing. The aluminized propellant was wonderful material and mates for that glow that Miniman's so famous for, mm -hmm. and and uh, Polaris, Poseidon, and Trident. They wanted to use beryllium because it had a slightly, uh, I think, substantially higher um, in, uh, specific mm -hmm. impulse, but it was so toxic they couldn't use it down in the atmosphere. But they do use it for the kick motors for um, a lot of the satellites and space probe because it's up in, in orbit. Yeah. Who, who cares? But yeah, yeah. They did. They did test fire several of the um, propellant mixtures with beryllium mm -hmm. out on San Nicolas Island, and that was. Um, Probably would not have would not happen nowadays. It's 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 insane. The uh, the quality control, yeah, is I know at, at cores they did something. I forget what it's called. It was the something blue test, and they'd like put this, they'd put this like uh, transparent liquid on it, and then if you shone a blue shined a blue light on it, you could see cracks, and that was yeah. their quality control. But they used they have a. They have a fluorescing leak um, crack detection system the same mm -hmm. way. It'll accumulate in the crack, then you shine a UV light on it, mm -hmm. and it glows. Yeah. Same same idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, another interesting thing I th was, I mean, I feel like if you actually wanted to, I mean, if you just had an infinite amount of time, I think that your, I think that your books could actually, like, if you just, like, let it run wild, like, let's say you just had a thousand years on Earth. I think your books could actually morph into like a history of man because you actually do. You can tell where you had to like cut off the like the burrowing of like more information because you get down into the <laughs> antimicrobials that they used on the surface because it's underground. It, is it moist? Is it you can't have, you know, bacteria and fungus getting in there and you go down to there, the manufacturers of that, where these things are coming from. And you can kind of tell where you almost had to like put your foot down and be like, OK, we're not going to go into like the backstory of the CEO of the fungus manufacturer. Yeah, but you could let it that run was, forever. That was one of my most difficult tasks because I get down to a detail that fascinated me. There's a lot of stuff that's not in the book because one of the reviewers said, this is great stuff, but you're just detracting from the story. That's why I put so much in the digital appendices mm -hmm. because there has to be a thread. I didn't write the book in any kind of chapter order. Yeah. I started with reentry vehicles yeah. and went to solid propellant. And then I said, whoops, I got to start the front of the book and uh, operations. No, you, and no, you was, don't. 
No, you don't. Stop reading the reviews. Your books are fantastic. Stop. The people that are reading, the people that are writing reviews are the people that took the time to sat down to read your book. And those people are reading the book because they want to learn about it. They want to learn about it because clearly they don't know about it. That being said, they don't know about it. You do know about it. Stop reading the reviews, man. It's Tom Brady doesn't listen to the fans. Tom Brady goes out and wins another Super Bowl. Your books are yeah. on point. Stop reading the reviews. I leave glowing reviews. You can probably tell because I'm just like, this is amazing. I sound like a moron. But it's don't read the reviews, man. Your books are fantastic. The depth and the quality is what makes them stand out. You know, there, there are a million yeah. books on the Cuban Missile Crisis. There are a million books on the JFK. So many of them. So many of them. There's one thing that really destroyed me, and, and is the reason my book is so thoroughly researched, is people reference another book to another book to another mm -hmm. book. So they don't bother to go and find the primary reference. Mm -hmm. All my references to the, to the Cuban Missile Crisis are from original, well, copies of the original histories from the Air Force. Mm -hmm. They're not quoting Scott Sagan's book or somebody else's book. Mm -hmm. And Sagan wrote a review, wrote a, uh, a book about limits of safety, about problems with nuclear weapons and why how they could have almost gone off. And he's talking about the quality and control of the access of the codes during the Cuban Missile Crisis and says that any, any one crew member could have launched a missile. Totally incorrect. Yeah. But he didn't look at one document that I found, which he should have been able to find, which clearly describes how the, the control of these sensitive materials. He made some guesses, and, and the guesses he made were based on what he wanted, the story he wanted to tell. And that's what, that's what just drives me nuts. If I didn't understand or had a question, I'd clearly say to someone, say in the book, the, uh, the final information on this is proved elusive. And then just end it there. Mm -hmm. Well, and you you do do that several times. There's no, there's no, uh, and I speculate there are some things that the sentence almost comes to an end because it's just further further documents are classified and it just goes to the next right. paragraph. And it's like I don't know yeah. what it is, so I'm not going to say what it is. That's that's, well, that's exactly one of the the things that I've not seen yet, and I think the book's been out long enough. It's sold over. Um, They've issued over a thousand copies, but some of that's comp copies. So the last I heard, there were 950 sold in three months, which the the um, publisher is very excited about. But yeah. so far, I've seen no review that says I've gotten anything wrong. Mm -hmm. well, and, and that's they, they can't, they can't because there's nothing wrong. You're just citing sources. There's only there's only two pages that have typos, and those will be corrected after the first two thousand books are gone. Okay, and that's uh, that's um. Their typos, my mistakes, but but other than that, no one else has said. You know, on page fifteen, there's this stupid mistake. So hey, if they which can, is good. If you know, it's like it's kind of like when someone attacks you in an in like a, if you ever have like a debate or an argument, and someone, you know, it's like look at me. If someone said, "Well, Tommy, you have a gap tooth," it'd be like, "Well, that now means that you have you can't meet my argument." So instead of bringing up facts to fight my argument, you put, Tommy, you're really white. It's okay. Well, thank you. It's so when someone says, you know, you have a typo on page 11, that's because they couldn't find any factually incorrect data in 400 pages. Yeah. That's what it means. Well, what's, what surprised me was the, the gentleman who found it was a very good friend of mine, my mm -hmm. severest, but quite honest critic. And he looked, he had to look up a, a fact using my book and the page he selected had the wrong George Bush. And, and instead of the 10th strategic missile squadron, it was a 310, which is clearly wrong. And he's right. The one page he looked at had the error in it. And, so, and this is what kills me about this particular individual. He said, if this page is wrong, how much else is wrong in the book? And it was like, thanks for seeding that. Uh, so I took, I took the, the um, final page proof and I did a uh, search for 310. And I found it in one other place. So it wasn't peppered throughout the book. And the people that were at Malmstrom will know it's a mistake. Yeah. And if they want to whine about it, try writing something with over 200,000 words in it and have it be perfect. Yeah. It's, it's not a simple task. What these commenters want is they want to live in your head rent-free. And you can't give that to them. <laughs> That's what they want. They want to know that they got, got in your head. So don't give it to them. Just... Well, that's why I didn't join the blog and try and argue with the commander 
retired commander who asked why this clown was writing the book. Don't. Just, just. Well, there's no way I'm going to come in. They're not going to say, well, David, you're right. You're absolutely right. I should have written the book and I didn't, so it's my fault. Yeah. They're going to say, ah, you're, you're a loser because you weren't in the program. Yeah, yeah. Most important to me are there were several reviewers and friends who helped me with data in the book, specifically the guy who did the IRCs and some other people. And when they said the book was, uh, what was the word? Glorious. I had several people write me and say the book is an absolute glorious uh, description of the Minuteman program. And if if they don't fund the replacement, which you never know, um, then this book is going to be the final say in Minuteman's history. Because at the end of it, I talk about the deactivation and the fact that it's going to be replaced. So if it doesn't get replaced, they're still going to have to deactivate it because there's just simply not enough of the missiles for test launches. Mm -hmm. And and then one could argue, and I think uh, pretty reasonably, that do we really need 400 missiles to launch against the Soviet, the Russia or China? No. In my not-so-humble opinion, we could have 100. Yeah. Or we could just rely on the subs. Yeah. Well, the, fear in the, the fear in the submarine industry uh, world is that somebody's going to break through with something that makes the oceans transparent. Mm -hmm. Right now, they aren't. Yeah. And the evidence for that is they can't find that Malaysian aircraft. That just boggles my mind. They can't find that. We, we, we watched, I watched a, um, a, a documentary on that. I can't remember the uh, flight number, that Air France three seven. flight. Uh, Malaysia's 370. Uh, right. Uh, the other one was 447 or something. It was a Air France flight from Brazil that ran into that thunderstorm and the pitot tubes froze over and the guys reacted. And what happened was they had, the pilots, again, the aircraft did have a problem with the pitot tubes frozen over, but they reacted incorrectly and uh, stalled the aircraft, went into a flat spin and yeah, hit the water. But they finally found it after several years of looking. I just just find it. I'm, I'm, I don't think they found it and are hiding it. Oh, by the way, that's that Indonesian submarine. I think they oh, yeah. they found some they found some debris floating on the surface. Yeah, I think they're yeah. For everybody listening, for everybody listening, today is uh, Saturday, April twenty fourth, twenty twenty one, uh, for historical purposes. Yeah, there, a submarine went missing a couple days ago, and I think they said it had it had a max depth of like three hundred feet. And I think the last message they got was from seven hundred feet. So I think I think that's they're probably. Well, it's funny. The Malaysian said a crack developed in the uh, and this stuff leaked out. Yeah, it's called catastrophic failure crack. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like what you, you don't you don't have cracks in submarines. You have <laughs> failures. It's kind of like what what Elon Musk calls uh you know explosions. It's rapid un rapid unscheduled disassembly. No, it's, right. it's an explosion. You don't have a crack yeah. in a submarine. Oh, the wind. Well, you know, what was funny was I just read a small article that another crew, four-man crew, launched on uh, a reused Falcon booster and a reused Falcon, um, reused Dragon capsule successfully yesterday. On, yeah, I guess yesterday or Thursday um, to the space station. So it's getting so routine now that uh, they're just... Yeah, I love it. It's, it's I love keep it. pushing I it forward. It's keep pushing it forward. Yeah. Well, it's like perseverance. Yes. Watching that thing land with that sky crane concept. Mm -hmm. I think the helicopter is kind of a stunt, but yeah. But perseverance and the things the size of a bus. Yeah. I just it's it fantastic. amazes me what they can do. It's beautiful. It's to to yeah. to circle back to the ocean. Yeah, that's one thing that's always boggled my mind is that. Like we have mapped the surface of Mars with uh, with uh, orbit orbiters, but yeah, we still haven't mapped the entire ocean floor. I mean, it took well, a one one thing about the ocean that uh, as a young man I wanted to be involved in but didn't was I am really surprised and disappointed they didn't spend the money on developing ocean technology like they did spaceflight. Yeah, there's somewhere we got seventy percent of the surface of the earth is covered by water and that means there's 70 percent of the earth is probably relatively unexplored yeah. now the fact that it's really deep okay it's really deep is it high pressure okay so space is no pressure yeah so we went to but, the moon like yeah 
we, we should be able to, we should have habitats that are that are colonizing the ocean floor. Of course, there has to be a reason for it in mining. I, I'm old enough to remember the Hughes, Howard Hughes, mm -hmm. the fake story of the Glomar, Glomar. Um, Challenge Explorer, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, when they went and picked up Titanic. Or not picked up, sorry. They well, went no, to, they went They went, the, went looking after the, the submarine. Sub, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And one of the regular boats was involved in that halibut after she got renovated from being a regular boat. She was involved in finding the actual debris field. Yeah, it's it's for everybody listening. That was Howard Hughes. Sorry, was publicly funded to go explore the Titanic. What it actually was is he was being paid by the CIA. I can't remember the name of the program. No, it wasn't the Titanic. He was. It was a drilling. The original design okay. was, it was was ocean mining. They were going after nodules of manganese as okay. a possible way to mine, easily mine the the depths of the ocean. And that so that was a cover story for the okay. actual system. Well, and so they went in and and what they were actually doing was they were trying. I think they wanted to pick up a Soviet submarine that had sunk. I think the, yeah, the guy the who designed. The guy who designed the the um, assembly for picking it up was the same guy who designed the assembly for recovering the reentry vehicle off of the Aaron Launch N7 <laughs> off of Bannenberg. And I interviewed the guy. Really? Oh, it's um, in Annie Jacobson's Surprise Kill Vanished. There's this guy, Billy Waugh, who, I mean, he went and fought in Iraq in his 70s. Like this guy, he'd been in everything from Korea through the Iraq War was a CIA agent, I mean, like, the inspiration for James Bond. But he said one of his favorite, he's in his 90s now, one of his favorite things was uh, he had such high clearance and had just proven himself over decades to just, you know, red, white, and blue through and through. They had no security questions with him. They put him out, just him, in a little dinghy out in, I think, Kwajalein or wherever, and they would have him kind of circle the area of where the Mervs would hit because they were detecting soviet subs nearby and they didn't want the soviets to go out and try to get a piece of it so there's just billy y out there with like an m16 and a dinghy just like he was circling well, the it's, area. it's interesting you mention that because i do have one or two um, references to an un unidentified submerged um, submersible in the kwajalein um lagoon mm -hmm. but i could never find a, a um a primary reference to that and i decided that's i didn't want to I, I cut a lot of it out. There's a lot of UFO stuff about Minuteman that I didn't use because I couldn't find um, I couldn't find authoritative sources. Now, some could argue the Air Force wouldn't have it, but I just that would be too easy to detract from the science of the book was yeah. to have speculation about it. Yeah, you, yeah, you don't want to put I, as in full disclosure. I love UFOs. That's my guilty pleasure. But you don't want to put that in something as documented and respected and really i think an authority for the ages on missile systems as your books i think that would taint it i think that would that would give yeah. people too easy uh make it so good that they can only attack you on typos don't don't give them oh, free fuel yeah right that's kind of what i thought yeah don't give them ammo because I, I believe the people that described this the um incidents are not making it up but mm -hmm. i don't have an explanation sure and and so but you're right it was i decided that if i put that in someone would go UFOs, yeah. this guy's a nutcase, and yeah. then, then they wouldn't. The book could get a bad reputation. So yeah, don't give them a, don't give them any ammunition. They're already frothing out the mouth. Like, this book shouldn't <laughs> have been written. Don't don't go. Don't throw them a knife. They're gonna come at you with it. Not that you yeah. need my advice. You're the author, not me. Um, I want to say is I got you for 15 more minutes. You remind me of of Richard Rhodes. Um, I've I've only read oh. three of his books. Um. Making of well, the thank atomic you. That's bomb. quite a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Go, yeah. I, I, I. And that's how I mean it. Making of the atomic bomb. My favorite of his, uh, Dark Sun. Making of the hydrogen bomb. Yeah. And he's. Yeah. His book Energy, which is like the 1700s to like nuclear power. It's actually very fascinating. Um, that's the only. When you go back, my favorite chapter is it's chapter seven of Dark Sun. Is when he goes into the actual construction of Ivy Mike. And he goes in, he's naming all the different la po waxy polyethylene, purple, black uh, uranium, a breath of tritium, liquid deuterium. And he's going into just every little and how it, yeah. instead of just saying, and then they pressed explode, he's like, 
you know, they pressed the button, which sent the, the signal to the capacitors, which discharged, which caused an impl- – then he goes into the atomic level, and it takes him like 15 minutes to explain a millionth yeah. of a second. But that is what your writing style reminds me of, is you go in and you're like – they had this many, you know, they had this computer chip with this many transistors and this many lines of code, and that caused this thing, which was sheathed with copper, to cause like fins to come out and stabilize. And you just go in, and it's just, it's like when you go to like a Golden Corral buffet, just like a pig, and you just stuff yourself, and you're you're let you leave not want. Not only do you want not want any more, but you're sick. You're like, that's enough. I've had enough. You finish Minuteman or Titan, and you're like, I now have enough of that forever. I there's so much information. Well, one of my next door neighbors, he, he wanted the book and he forced me to let him buy it from me. And so I've asked him twice whether he's, how he likes the book and he just looks at me and shakes his head. He's a computer guy. The interesting thing you mentioned about the computer chips uh-huh. and the first um, computer had a certain number of diodes and this mm-hmm. and that. And the number of transistors, uh, resistors was like 400 and 509. And I looked at that and I thought, that can't possibly be right. Yeah. So I went and found the original description of the computer from. 512. Um, it was 5,994. 5, oh. oh, okay. 5,094 because someone dropped the four. Yeah. But that reminds me of the story about Titan Two. When we first gave the, there were two things about it. The, the most important one that we needed to correct was people said six feet of soil on the silo closure door and mm-hmm. it was still open. Not and correct. I looked at that and I thought, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. So when I looked in the, and because it just is that much soil, a foot of soil across 400 square feet yeah. is a lot of weight. So I went back to the original design documents, which believe it or not, we had, and it was six inches. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of those um, hashtag hash marks was gone, so it promulgated to six feet. Yeah, which is so yeah. That, that's the kind of so when I found out about the resistors. I didn't say it in the text. I just put an endnote it. And if you look at the endnote, it says the actual number is 5,094. 5, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's another thing. Is Oh, yeah, that's what I wrote down. Now, if I'm correct, Titan didn't have this, but Minuteman did. And it's, they had these sort of like, uh, like buckets over the silo that would catch. So let's say there was a nearby nuclear explosion. And it would displace this much material, and it would change it. Some of it would be ablated. Some of it would be melted. But if there was a nearby hit, which obviously is a possibility, more than likely they're going to try to hit those silos, is it would blow all that junk onto the silo. So what they had is like almost like little bat or baskets or buckets or whatever the hell it they were, was. They were called bins, bins. debris bins. Bin, yeah. Now that was a retrofit into the program. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a stroke of genius because there's yeah. something called the angle of repose. The reason piles of dirt have a certain, yeah. depending on the material, yeah. they have an angle of repose. And it may be this, it may be this. Depends on the material and its cohesiveness. And so when you open the silo closure door and Titan two or the launch facility closure door, launcher closure, when you move it, if there's a foot of soil over the um, the opening, and on either side of the opening was a bin, and that bin would spring open at the same time or slightly before the debris started to fall. Now, obviously, if it was a foot thick or two feet thick, that it's still classified what the, the depth of soil is. But the interesting thing about it is, for a Minuteman, the only thing they'd have to worry about really was it dinging the reentry vehicle because the sides of the, of the missile, even though they had the ablative cork on them, there wasn't a, a tank to puncture mm-hmm. like there was with the Atlas or Titan One or Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what. I, yeah, that's that's the detail. I because it was a as a Titan um, dos, docent, there was a gap of about when the silo closure door opened, there was a, a gap of about I'm just going to say roughly two feet. And I always wondered why it didn't just open right away to the opening for the launcher, and that was because that was the space that the debris would fall down. And the other uh, thing that was important with Titan II was Titan II had a much larger diameter than the missile. Mm-hmm. So if debris fell down, it was likely to fall on the very outside yeah. of the outer rim instead of in near the middle. Yeah. But with Miniman, it was a six-foot diameter silo. Um, and, a, and I think it was not six, 12-feet diameter silo and a six-foot diameter missile. 
uh, five foot diameter missiles. So you had three, three and a half feet on either side. Mm -hmm. So there was some room for it to, the debris to cascade down without hitting the uh, on the uh, missile itself. Yeah, Titan. Two. One of the fascinating things about Miniman was the fact that when it left the launcher, if you find a film that's fast enough speed. They, the missiles on fire because the ablative corpse caught on fire. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. That's another thing you talked about in the design is they had to uh, write the exhaust plume of the W or the J shape or whatever kind of duct they had. That actual plume upon takeoff, they had to have a certain uh, heat resistant or heat retardant coating because that was super hot, right? The big ball of fire well, that would go through. Yeah, unlike Titan, Titan one and two and Atlas. It wasn't a flame bucket. Mm -hmm. I did some really very early testings, and I was able to find some really wonderful photographs of this, which actually made it into the book. Um, took a long, uh, took quite a while to get the photograph to be a high enough quality, but it's a, it's a microfilm of a microfilm. Anyway, um, there's an annulus around the missile that the flames went up. So instead of being exhausted, ducted away from the missiles like an Atlas and Titan One and Two. Uh, the flame just went up with the missile. So for a brief second, it was under quite a bit of heat stress. Mm -hmm. And it, the flames would be extinguished once it accelerated to speed. But the missiles coming out of the hole, all of the Miniman missiles coming out of the hole are burnt charcoal, couldn't color. Mm -hmm. Because the cork has been burnt, yeah. <laughs> burnt out. Yeah. What surprised me was something as mundane as cork was used. And not only that, they tested different thicknesses, and they actually put on a pretty meager coating because they wanted it to absorb the heat, protect the missile, but they didn't want it to have a bunch of residuals. So actually it burns off almost to completion as it's going through the atmosphere, so okay. there's not extra weight. And you think extra weight, big deal, something that is that powerful. Made a difference at the end of the mission how much weight was being carried. Absolutely. Over 7,000 miles? I mean, it adds up. Right? Yeah, it was uh, the range that I give for the yeah, Miniman was the third reentry vehicle was in the neighborhood of 7,000 nautical miles. That's another thing that, um, that bothers me about some of the histories written by some really authoritative guys. They used the one launch of Atlas that went nigh over 9,000 miles um, and a launch that we're trying to do with Titan II, which we would have gone over 9,000 miles. And they state that as the operational range. The operational range for Titan II was 5,500 nautical miles, period. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything longer. Yes, they could have put a Mark IV on it. Yes, it could have gone further, but they didn't. Yeah. So, no, the operational range isn't 7,000 miles for Titan II with a Mark IV. It's 5,500 nautical miles with a Mark VI and fully loaded with decoys. But some really well-known... Um, historians quote the other, and it just it drives me nuts when they do that. But I think part of it is because they want to sell books. Well, it's yeah, you got to have that sexy number. You got to have it can throw a nine megaton warhead this many. Yeah, they got to. Yeah, that's what they want. But that's again, that's why I think you're the authority. Is is I was going to say, it makes me think of the ablative coating they put on the X15, that sort of pink eraser like coating. And how it actually like messed it up because some of it would stick, and they had to put like a metal eyelid on one of the windows that they could open up. I don't know if you ever seen those old pictures, but it's this thing oh. that yeah, they could like the pilot could like manually like crank something inside, and the left you know there's two windows. The left window had right. a metal eyelid. That's what they called it, and it could he could crank it up and open it in case the ablative material had basically covered the right eye. Because you can't be coming in at Mach 5, Mach 6, Mach right. 7 and not see anything. But that little yeah. tiny thing in a blade of coating, it's like it's a it's a rocket being dropped from a B-52. What do you mean? It's Well, it does make a difference. And with a reentry vehicle, I mean, when you're trying to have that circular error probability, I mean, it, it adds up. It adds oh, up. Oh, sure it does. Yeah. Sure it does. I mean, think of a rifle. That's why, that, yeah. that's why they had to work on a new nose tip because just a small imperfection. Now... If these things were flying through a nearby blast and still had debris in the air, they would have dinged the RV and they wouldn't have made it. Mm -hmm. But that's why they had to wait until after the debris cloud settled before they launched. So there's a thing called pin down where the Soviets or we would launch multiply timed missiles so the detonations would keep going off and you couldn't get the missiles out of the hole. Oh. That, 
that takes a lot of missiles. Were there the thousand targets that Miniman had to be targeted on? There were plenty of targets, but in my not so humble opinion, I think they were reserving them to be multiple hits on certain targets just to make sure A, the targets disappeared and B, the bombs, the uh, reentry vehicles made it through. There was overkill and, and, and yeah, there was. There was overkill in the 50s and early 60s. But that's that was that's what it was. It's again, it's like you say, it's easy for us to look back at. That's what it was. There was no. It was it, here's this brand new thing. We can shoot rockets without even leaving our country. Yeah, it's you yeah. have to have multiple per targets. Are they going to take us out? I never knew about that. That they would. So you could kind of keep pounding the area around it, and you throw all this material in the air. Well, the material and radiation yeah. X-rays from the orbit from the bomb going off. Yeah, I mean that's my supposition as a non-nuclear targeting guy, but that's one way to do it. The trouble is, it takes a lot of missiles. Yeah, well, that's right. That's what isn't that what they called the Great Plains? Was the ICBM sponge? Well, that's, I've never heard that. That's yeah. I think pretty good description. I think it was Lemay. Someone described it as it's like it's kind of like a, it's kind of dark, but they're like, hey they have to expend this much, right? It's like, I don't know, it's like having really thick gutters around your house. There has to be a lot of rain to overcome it. That's Well, that's, that's no, no, I, I never heard of it as the ICBM sponge, but that's, yeah, LeMay said at one point, LeMay, they talked about radiation and, and debris and fallout and whether that would be a problem with cities nearby. And LeMay just said, we can do so much and then we got to build the damn things. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the design down the road. There are a lot of people saying, "Well, the missile's got this." If you have ninety-nine percent probability of launch and ninety-nine percent probability of getting to the target, ninety-nine percent probability of the RV going off, that multiplies out to be in maybe point eighty percent. So people, well, that's not very good. It's pretty. Well, good. if you do the math, if you do the math, it's the best you can do. Yeah, and if you've got thirty thousand warheads and you can get eighty percent of them. I mean, It'll probably do the trick. It's yeah, and when you're throwing multi megatons into orbit, I mean, at a certain point, you have to stand back and go, "It's pretty good, right?" You know, yeah. When you're well, that's my point. At some yeah. point, they just had to say, "Okay, we need to design these. We need to get them built." Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's in, it's not going to be perfect. Yes, they might be destroyed by a nearby hit. Uh, the silos might be <laughs> unaligned or misaligned because of a nearby hit. That's all very true, but. My logic with that, and I didn't really say in the book, was if that happens, we've got bigger problems. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to matter if Miniman, all the Miniman missiles didn't get out of the hole because we've been hosed. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's like uh, it's like uh, if it's like if you own a home on top of a, like a hill and you don't buy like flood insurance, you're like, well, if the off chance there is a thirty foot flood, man, I'm going to be out a hundred thousand bucks. And it's like, dude, if there's a thirty foot flood, it means it's the biblical end times. <laughs> There's well, that's be, what I talk about yeah. biblical events. Yeah. It'd be a biblical event, and we're yeah. we're not going to have to. Yeah, if okay. there's that much snow, and we can't launch, that's a biblical event that we have no control over. Yeah. But it is interesting. I'm old enough to remember back in the day the bomb shelters being built. Mm-hmm. I talked to my dad, and two things struck me. I remember about that. He said, "David, well, the first thing he did is one day. Have you ever heard of Gainsburgers?" No. It was a dog food that looked like a hamburger. Oh, Jesus. And we were we each got a chance to take a bite out of one because he said, if, if there's a nuclear war, that's what we're going to have to eat. And I said, why don't we have a bomb shelter? And he said, David, if there's a nuclear war, there aren't going to be hospitals. There aren't going to be roads. There's not going to be civilization as we know it. So why do we want to live, live to come up out of the ground? Yeah, you don't. See that. And I thought, well, that's kind of defeatist. And then I did a little bit of work on the math, even as a 12-year-old. And I thought, they can't dig these things deep enough. No. And there's not enough oxygen. I don't care what kind of scrubbers you think you can afford. There's not enough oxygen and CO2 scrubbers. So coming to the surface after World War III, yeah. not something I'm looking at. Well, coming to the surface after you bomb the crap out of something in the Bora Bora region of Afghanistan can't be a lot of fun either. No. Well, yeah, if you're the president, the vice president, or in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you've probably got a bunker that might be worthwhile. You might be able to have, you know... You if might, you can get to it. Yeah. In this day and age, 
by the time you're flying in a helicopter. Yeah, it's it's you know, gone. To it's, me, the concussive the concussive wave from an, even yeah. a conventional weapon going off is gonna. It's it's. But, that's the beauty of nuclear war, is you have to come to this conclusion. There's nothing left, and if and there's one thing you do want in preparing for a nuclear war, and it's a handgun with a clip with enough ammo to shoot everyone you love and then shoot yourself. That's, well, that's a bit of, that's a bit extreme, but I can't well, say I disagree. Well, well, what I am is I'm I'm loosely quoting Eisenhower during one of the drills in the fifties. Eisenhower said, "He said you don't understand. People are going to be mad. They're going to be insane." He said the most humane thing you can do is to crawl out of your bunker, shoot everyone you meet, and then shoot yourself. That's Dwight D. Eisenhower from uh, Garrett Graff's Raven Rock. It's oh. the, that's the five star general saying that. I'm just rewording it. It's yeah, it's, yeah. But in a sense, that's the beauty of it. Is that's why it can't be done because everyone knows that's the outcome. I've kept you for um, over an hour. I did want to ask you. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. Um, the ending you talk about. Let me pull it up real quick. The ending. Blah 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 blah. The ground based strategic deterrent. Uh, GBSD. That's that's the replacement in 2030, correct? For the Minuteman. Currently, that is that that's been programmed, and uh, Northrop Grumman has a sole source contract for it, and Boeing, I think, has given up trying to to um, compete with it. Okay. But it's a matter of whether they can afford the trillions of dollars versus the subs and the bombers. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there there could be a point with this infrastructure where they say that money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I have good friends that are working on it with North and Northrop Grumman, and so far they haven't been laid off. So we'll see. It's probably a no, but is there any chance you think that they would do this podcast? Um, no. I think you're right. Ninety nine percent of people I ask say no, so you can't hurt my feelings. No, no, I think yeah. I think there are several of them have they're employed by Northrop Grumman and, and yeah. uh, that's the kind of thing that a company like that, even if you're spouting um, not spouting, even if you're a, a public well, for instance, the Titan II book was a Lockheed Martin advertisement for Titan II. Mm-hmm. And Miniman's basically an advertisement for those companies. Were there problems? Yeah, were there some problems with the guidance system and that caused a lot of stress in Congress. I mention it. I don't emphasize it because mm-hmm. if you if you want to get a, an idea of problems, just think of Congress not getting the damn thing done most of the time. <laughs> they'd be the they'd be the first ones to complain and the last ones to admit guilt. So well, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I called Northrop Grumman last summer, and I I tried to get them to answer some questions about the B twenty one Raider, the replacement to the B two Spirit. Sure. I I had my ear chewed off over the phone. Wow. Don't ever call back. Don't ever ask questions about that. Do you know what that is? You know, do you have and I was like, they thought I was an employee and they're like, you know that you're not like you're not to talk about that on like company lines. And I was like, My name's Tommy. I'm I do a podcast. I just I just want to talk to you about it. And she was like, Young man, like do you know what you're asking? And I was like, Well I was like, There's YouTube videos about it, like on Northrop Grumman's channel. Yeah, and basically, without saying, it kind of told me to go f myself, and uh, I took that. Well, as a, I've, I've been trying. What really amazed me is how much is still classified of Minuteman One A and B. That makes it so the much. Thing sexier. isn't even deployed anywhere. It's just just drives me nuts. It's Although, sexy. I got the um, the launch records for that for Minuteman One A and B were unclassified. They were part of the information I used for the Titan II book. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to get the Minuteman II and they said, ah, we can't give you that. The Minuteman III was impossible. That's what makes but, it sexy. Yes, that's, yeah. That's the beauty of it. Um, I, I will let you go. I have kept you for over an hour. Mr. David Stump, the authority on missile books. <laughs> Don't read the comments. Those people suck. Get it. If, if you have any interest in missiles just get it don't, don't eat, you don't even need to read the whole thing find a chapter on something that you're interested in and just get lost <laughs> in it it's fun it's i i 
I enjoy it. It's fun to go down the rabbit hole and to just hear about this stuff that you, and then when you hear, they're talking about re-entry vehicles and latitude, longitude, and you're like, oh man, this is some high tech stuff. And you're like, and they debuted it on January 2nd, 1960. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> and you're like, what, yeah. in the sixties? You're like, Jesus, two years before JFK was killed. But yeah. it, I mean, it really is fascinating. I highly recommend it oh, to thank anybody. You. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you don't have a say in the matter. You're going to come back on here a third time, and we're going to talk about Argus. Oh, I'll have to read up on it. I don't know much about Argus. I th- I thought you, how about I thought you said, Regulus? Regulus. I thought you said you wrote a book on Argus. No, I wrote a book on Regulus. No, you said earlier about a space. Yeah. Oh, I am reading a book. Oh, I thought you said you Argus, wrote a book. Okay. Overton. Okay, we'll do yeah. Regulus. Uh, I'd, I'd like to do Regulus. That'd let's be do, fun. Let's do Regulus. I'll grab it and... Uh, I think we'll do the same thing. I'll, I'll email you. We can work it out. But uh, okay. you don't have a say in the matter. As long as I have your ear, I have the master of missiles. I'm going to ask you stupid questions <laughs> until the cows come home. Okay. Take care, Tommy. It's you been see, a pleasure. That always is. And lastly, stop reading those comments, man. Seriously. you don't. I, don't. I, don't I, I tell you what I am doing. I do have a graph because I'm a numbers nerd. I'm plotting the um, ranking and the ranking in three separate um, subclasses. And so far, I've been keeping pretty steady below 100,000 on the ranking and in the hundreds or below 100 for the subclasses. And the publisher is very pleased. So that's, that's good. Don't don't listen to anything any of those people say. They suck. They just want to they just want to get in your head. Don't listen. Well, if, he'd, if he'd had substantive substantive um, complaint, I would have taken more seriously. But just to say it isn't it's still active. Yeah, it's still active. Does that mean you can't write a history about the Prius because the Prius is still active? No, you write a you write a book because it has history to to, um, to give it. Don't there's so, anyway. There's a there's a quote. There's a quote real quick. There's a quote, and it says, "If you stop and listen to every barking dog, you'll never get to your destination." <laughs> so just just you got books to write. You have a beautiful mind. Don't listen to the barking dogs. Just throw them some bacon and keep on going. It's awesome. Thank you. That's, yes, that's great advice. I'll send you an email. We'll do a regular episode. Everybody, the book will be in the description, sticking to the top comment. It's a fantastic read. I didn't understand half of it. You probably won't either, but it's a fun rabbit hole to jump down, and it's fun to learn about. Mr. David Stump, thank you so much, sir. God bless. You're welcome. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.